0: And if those of you that are remaining would turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Our text this morning is Galatians 3, verses 15 through 18. So if you'd please stand with me. Hear now the word of the Lord, this word that is living and powerful, this word that is true and sufficient. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Thus far the reading of God's word. Praise be to him for his word. Please be seated. Have you ever had the experience of explaining something to someone in a way in which you thought was perfectly clear? And the response you got was some sort of a blank stare. I give that anyone anytime anyone tries to explain something related to math or science to me. I just I find that often I do that with other people. I, I speak and I'm thinking this is incredibly obvious, and it's just, they don't get it. It happens with our children. It happens with our spouses. It happens at work. And so what do we do when we're greeted with, I'm not sure they're getting it? We say, well, you know, it's like this. And we give what? An example or an illustration Examples and illustrations are so important, it's one of the main things that's discussed in preaching classes in seminary. One of my professors, who's one of the finest preachers I've ever had the blessing to hear, Dr. Derek Thomas, speaks of illustrations as windows that let in light to the room of the sermon. And you may notice that I try on occasion to give illustrations Sometimes I try so hard that even it comes back to disappoint me the next week when I give a rousing illustration related to something, say, like football. And then I'm disappointed the next week. But I hope that that illustration will help you to remember what's going on in that text. And you see, Paul's no different because Paul was a preacher. And so what Paul has done here is he is drilling home the central tenet of the faith. Justification by faith alone. And he is given an argument from experience. He says, you know, Galatians, did you have the Spirit by the law or by faith? Think about your lives. And then he says, well, let's look at the Scriptures. Let me quote about eight or nine to you and show that they prove justification by faith. And just in case some of the Galatians are still going, He says, brothers, let me give you an example. And he comes right down into something that's in their everyday lives. And praise be to God, I think it's something that we can bring into our everyday lives. And so today, Paul is going to show me. We're not in Missouri, but he is going to show us what this doctrine means. And we're going to look at the promise of God. We're going to see, Lord willing, that the promise of God is unchangeable. It is fixed. It cannot move or change. And because of this, we see the promise of God is secure. It is safe. And this promise is not just unchangeable and secure, but it is the primary thing in our lives. The promise is primary. It is the primary way that we relate to God. And this is because the promise of God is gracious. The promise of God shows us the grace of God. And so let us take a look here at this promise through this word picture, this illustration that Paul gives. First, we see that the promise is unchangeable. We've noted that Paul is transitioning here to an illustration. Paul has been making the same point over and over again. If it seems to you as if you're hearing a variation on the same sermon week after week, there's a sense in which that's true. Paul's really drilling home this point to us, isn't he? It's not of works, it's of grace. It's not of law, it's of faith. It's not of us. It's of God, over and over again. It's because it's not only the central truth we need to know, it's a truth we tend to wander from. And so he makes this same point over and over again. As we've said, first, in chapter 3, in the first nine verses, he makes it from experience to the Galatians. And then secondly, he uses the Bible in verses 10 through 14. And now here he gives an illustration. And what is this illustration that he gives? He says, let me give you a human example, brothers. And I think that's a good translation. You know, let me give you something from everyday life, I think the NIV says. This is basically what he's doing. He says, let me explain to you what it looks like. He says, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. He says, let me tell you about, basically, a will. The word here for covenant is also the word that was used in the ancient word for a will. You know, I, Fred Greco, hereby being of sound mind and body, do hereby bequeath all of my worldly goods to the party of the first part, the second... You know the drill. You have to use words like bequeath and testifieth in a will, right? Right? And then what do you do? You stamp it and you lock it up and you put it in some safe place. This is something we we know about. It's something that those of us that have newly gotten married or are thinking about getting married will think about doing about the same time that we have our first child. right? That's when we start to think, ooh, we've got someone to take care of. It's something that everyone does in a general fashion. So it's something that's common to society. It was common in Jewish society, common in Greek society, common in Roman society. There are all sorts of laws involved with it. There's a whole branch of law called probate law and trust in estate law. It employs thousands of lawyers. This is something that's common and every day. And what do we know about a will? Well, a will is unconditional and it is declarative. I cannot say, you know what? I think I'll inherit 10% of Bill Gates' stock. You know what I really would like? I would really like the game ball from the 1973 Rose Bowl. No. The one who possesses what will be inherited makes a declaration. This is what he will give as an inheritance. So this is a wonderful picture of the way the Lord relates to us. You see, when we want to understand something, we need to explain it in terms that are roughly similar, and that's what Paul does here. And what Paul does with this illustration is he argues from the lesser to the greater. Those of you that are involved with rhetoric or speech, there's actually a a Latin phrase that goes along with this. It's a common rhetorical technique. You know, Paul basically says, Listen, if this principle applies when a guy sits down and writes a will, how could it not apply to God? If when a man writes a will, and it's set in stone, and it can't be changed, how could God change His will and testament for us? you see what he's doing here? He's coming right at the Judaizers. He's saying, you know what you're implying? You're implying that a man's word is more stable than God's. You know, we know about wills that can't be changed. And you're saying that God's inheritance and testimony can be changed. You're making God less than a man. That would get the Galatians' attentions. And he says, this is what this will is like. He says, there are no additions to this. He says, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. He says, this is something that has been ratified. Now, let me give you an illustration about the illustration. Something we all know. The parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember what happens in that parable? The son comes to his father, and what does he say? Father, give me my inheritance when? Now. I want it right now. And what does the father do? He draws up his inheritance. He takes half. He's got two sons. This is easy math. Even I can do it. He says, I've got two sons. I'll cut it in half. Here's your half. He's done this. He's ratified it. Again, there's a Jewish law term for this. And that's something of what's going on here. It has been ratified. It has been set in place. It cannot be changed. The inheritance is fixed. Now, you might say, well, okay, that's a Jewish custom, but it seems to me I wrote my will, and you hear all the time about people writing a will, and then they don't like someone that's in their will. So what do they do? They change it. They put an addition, there's even a nice legal term for that, a codicil. What's going on here? Why can't God change his will? You know that the will doesn't change, even Hebrews tells us, till the death of the testator. Well, it's interesting that this covenant, this bequeathment, this inheritance that God gives to Abraham is sealed by a bond in blood death is prefigured here in this inheritance. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis 15. Some of you may have heard me use this example before. It's a a wonderful text to help us understand what's going on here, beginning at verse 12. Abraham In verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on him, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring down judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace." You shall be buried in good old age. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and flaming torch passed between these pieces, that is, the pieces of the sacrifices. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. You see, what God did was he had Abraham set up sacrifices. And normally, the lesser would walk through the sacrifices, saying that if this covenant is broken, I'll be killed just like the sacrifices. But here in this case, God himself walks through the sacrifices, saying, I will take upon myself the punishment for a covenant that is broken, prefiguring The death of the Lord Jesus Christ. A bond sealed in the blood of sacrifice. Even the very word that Paul uses here in verse 3 points to this kind of thing. He says, Once it has been ratified. In the Greek, this is a perfect tense. It means something that has been done but has present consequences. You see, it has been done, it has been ratified, it is finished, but it has present consequences for the Galatians, and for you, and for me. It is ratified and firm, and that means that it can't be canceled. He says no one can annul it. Looking to works nullifies this promise. Paul uses this same word, Annuls it in verse 21 of chapter 2. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's the same word. He says you can't wipe this covenant out. You may pretend it doesn't exist and want to seek God by another way, but you can't. It's ratified, it's firm, it can't be changed. Now, I want you to notice something else in this verse that's an extremely practical illustration of this. Do you notice what Paul says to the Galatians? He says, to give a human example, brothers. Do you see that? He comes back to that little word. He hasn't used it since verse 11 of chapter 1. In the middle of saying how messed up the Galatians are, how confused they are in their theology, how their practices, he's going to talk about later in the next few chapters, have been way astray. He says, listen, this covenant is so sure, even though your theology has been off for a period of time, even though you are tempted to look to your works, even though you're not treating each other the way you're supposed to, that can't annul the promise. It can't. Now, that applies to us as well. Are you caught in a sin right now? Seeming that you'll never get free of it. Perhaps it's a sin that no one knows about. Not your children. Not your spouse. Not your friends. Not your pastors. No one. And it eats away at you. And you think there's no hope. You think that there's no way you'll be free of it. This gives hope. The promise cannot be broken. It cannot be annulled. There is hope for sinners in the promise of God. God keeps His promise. It cannot be changed. The promise is also secure. Why is it secure? Paul tells us in verse 16. He says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, And to offsprings, as to many but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, notice first here that Paul's emphasis is on the promises. He wants us to see the nature of this covenant. It is a gracious covenant. He wants us to see that issues of salvation lead to issues of community, not the reverse. As we've said over and over again, being right with God puts us within the people of God. All the blessings we've talked about, about being in a family and being with each other and encouraging each other and praying for each other, that comes as a consequence of being right with God. It begins there. It's not the reverse. We don't get right with God by being a part of the people of God, no matter what others today may say. And this promise is secure, this promise that Paul lays emphasis on, because who was it made to? Was it made to Abraham? Well, no, not primarily, Paul says. He says it's made to Abraham and to his seed. This promise was made to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about that. How secure a promise is that where the promiser is God and the recipient of the promise is God? And neither changes and neither fails, and neither grows tired or weak. This promise is made to Jesus Christ. That's why Abraham, when he received the promise, Christ tells us, he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus' day and was glad. By receiving the promise, Abraham trusted in Christ. That's what Paul said earlier in this chapter, didn't he? when he said that Abraham was justified by faith. And you remember we said faith isn't like wishful thinking. Faith has an object, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If we would have a secure promise, we must look to Jesus Christ. If you would be secure in where you will spend eternity, you must look to Jesus Christ. If you would obtain the blessings of a godly marriage, you must look to Jesus Christ. If you would raise your children to walk after God's ways, you must look to Jesus Christ and the promise. There is no other place that the promise is secure. You see, this promise is secure to us because it is given to Christ and because Christ then brings it, to us, And do you notice that Paul gives us a wonderful Bible lesson here? Do you see what he does? He hinges a great part of his argument on a single word in the Old Testament. He says, you know, it wasn't seeds, plural. It was seed. Look it up, he might say to the Judaizers. Get out your Torah. It says seed. And someone might argue and someone might say, well, but, you know, seed, we talk about planting seed. It's a collective noun. There are plurals. And Paul would say, exactly, precisely. What? It is a single noun. And it is a collective noun. Well, Paul, how can it be both? How can it be one and be many? And Paul says, that's what the Christian life is like. The promise was made to Christ, and in Christ, we all receive it. Everyone who is in Christ receives the promise. No one is left on the outside looking in. Paul will get much more theological with a different church, the church at Rome. He'll spend most of chapter 5 of Romans explaining exactly how this works, saying that Jesus Christ is our federal head. Jesus is the last Adam. Everyone that is united to Christ receives this promise because it is secure in Christ and Christ brings it to us. You see, we don't even have to worry about whether we can receive the promise. Christ has done that for us. If we have faith in Him, we have all that is His, Paul tells us in Ephesians. This is a secure promise. There is one seed. There is one people. Do you see Paul drilling that point again? Everyone, Jew, Greek, Galatian, Ephesian, Roman, Spaniard, Italian, Irish, Chinese, Thai, Filipino they're all part of one people of God. They are all children of Abraham. There is only one seed. There is only one recipient of the promise. We receive this when we belong to him. And Paul might say, picking up on his point from the beginning of this chapter, that's why faith is so important. You only get what Jesus gets. You don't get anything else. There's no other place to get anything, right? We might say you don't get money by going somewhere other than a bank. You go to a bank because that's where they keep money. If you want the promise, you go to Jesus because that's where the promise is found. That's where it is secure. Well, the promise is unchangeable. This promise is secure, but it is also primary You see, Paul knows that these Judaizers like to talk about Abraham. But quickly on the heels of Abraham, they would love to bring in Moses. And say, well, yes, of course, Abraham had the promise. But, you know, there's also this law. And you know what that means. That means uh, circumcision. And that means not eating these foods. And that means wearing this kind of clothing. And that means... And they would go on with their list and on and on and on and on. And we... His church are tempted often to do the same. Well, yes, there's faith in Jesus. But, you know, you really need to have a Presbyterian form of government. Or you really need to have a Baptist form of government. Or you really need to be immersed. Or you really need to be sprinkled. Or you really need to be this or you need to be that. Making things primary that are secondary. Things that flow out of salvation. Now, note, the law is not unimportant. Baptism is not unimportant. Church government is not unimportant. But it comes after. And Paul gives us a wonderful example of this. He says, You know, I know this law is important. He says, But you're forgetting something. It came 430 years later. You had the promise, and then it wasn't like a week later, it was 400 plus years later that the law came. It's a witness to the primacy of grace. Paul might say this to the Judaizers. You know, if the law was necessary for salvation, um, that means it came too late for Abraham. And he's out of luck. Even circumcision came after his justification, didn't it? We talked about that at the beginning of this chapter. You can't look at the law primarily because it comes later. God's dealings with his people are always by way of promise and grace. Paul might even turn again to the Torah and open up the book of Exodus. And he might say, do you remember in Exodus 2 when the people cried out? It says God remembered what in verse 24? His covenant. And again in verse 5 of chapter 6. God says, I have remembered my covenant, not my law, not their obedience. He remembers his covenant that he made with Abraham. And because of the promise, he delivers. And because he has delivered, he gives the law. What's the first verse of Exodus 20? I am the Lord your God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I've already done it. Now let me give you my law. It comes second. You see, the stress that Paul is making here is on the faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. He says the law can't wipe out the promise. Both of them come from God. You can't say, well, this promise to Abraham doesn't really count because now we have the law. Paul says it even stronger in Romans 3. He says even the unfaithfulness of people to whom the law was given, cannot wipe out the promise in Romans three three, Nothing can wipe out this promise. It's like this. Kids, have you ever played baseball in an area that's not a baseball field? You know, where there's like, right by first base, there's a big tree, or there's a garage door, or a roof, or something like that. And somebody hits it, and it goes up in the tree and falls down. Then what do you say? Do over, right? He's not out, he's not safe. It's a do over. Do it over again. What Paul's saying here is God doesn't work on the principles of do over. God doesn't make mistakes. He knows what he's doing, he sets it up the way it's supposed to be. He doesn't need a do over. The law comes too late. It's not just that the law comes too late in time, the law cannot trump the promise. Now, if you're like me and you've ever played a friendly game of euchre or hearts or something like that, you know what a trump does. There's a certain suit that beats another suit. If we're playing with spades, even if someone has a higher number than me, if I play a heart, I win because hearts are worth more than spades. The law is not worth more than the promise. It can't trump it. It can't defeat it. Because God is not just the giver, but look at what Paul says. It is a covenant previously ratified by God. Paul has to invent a word here. He says it wasn't just ratified, it was ratified beforehand. This is the one who has given the promise. You see, the Judaizers want to turn God into a certain type of person. Now, I had to actually look this up on the internet to where this comes from. But as soon as I say it, you'll know what I mean, even if you don't know where it came from. God is not an Indian giver. He doesn't give and say, oh, you know, by the way, I really needed that promise. Here, take the law instead. You'll like the law. We do that all the time, don't we? I do that with my kids. I give them something, find out I need it later, and I say, oh, well, you know, I need that back. Here, look, you'll really love this instead. We go to shop for things and we have that, right? We see that. We have a whole set of laws about it called bait and switch. Washer on sale, $50. And you go within the salesman says, you know, this $50 washer really is horrible. It doesn't work. It has no warranty. It's an ugly color. This one you'll love. The $500 one, right? God doesn't do that. He's not in that business. He is faithful. You see, the law principle, and we're going to look at this in weeks to come, the law is important, but it is subservient to grace. The law serves the purposes of the promise and grace. We are Bible believing, whole Testament, whole Bible believing Christians. We don't take the law, crumple it up, and throw it in a corner and say, don't need it anymore, got grace. But what we do is we say, it serves the purposes of grace. It's a guide for us on how to live while we're in grace. Not a way to get into God's grace. You see, the difference is not just in time, it is in character. This is the promise. It is unconditional. It is secure. It is primary, and it is also gracious. Look how Paul ends. He wraps up this whole thought in verse 18. He says, For if the inheritance comes by the law... It no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. You see, Paul says the nature of this promise is gracious because it comes from God. A promise by nature is gracious. You can't earn a promise. You can't earn something to make me promise to do something for you. I have to promise, right? How many of you the week before you got married weren't sure if you were going to get married because you weren't sure if your spouse was going to do something? Wash the car, cook a good meal, do some gardening? No. You came together and you gave a promise. And you have to give it freely. Isn't That's a part of the vows, isn't it? A part of the marriage vows is that no one is doing this by constraint. They are freely promising to enter into the marriage. Right? We have it with wills too, don't we? One of the things that makes a will invalid is if someone is coerced. If you come and put a gun to my head and I promise you my house, that's invalid. Because it has to be a free promise. So with God, the nature of a promise is free. It's true in our families too, isn't it? You're in a family because of the relationship and the promise, not based on performance. No one tosses their kid out of the family because they don't clean their room one week. We don't live in perpetual fear of being put out on the front stoop. It's not how families work. Paul illustrates this by using a very powerful word. It's a little bit hidden by most translations. <clears throat> he says, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. That word give is not the ordinary word for give. It's a perfectly good Greek word that Paul could have used "forgive." Paul uses the word that means graciously give, freely give. I'll give you an illustration that will help you to remember it. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 32, as soon as I begin the verse, many of you will be able to finish it. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up freely for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? <clears throat> That's what Paul's saying. He's given us his son. How does he not graciously give us everything that is Jesus's? Same word. Only God can fulfill this covenant, this will, this promise. We can't. It's not a commercial transaction. It's not like bartering. Many of you, because of your jobs, travel in foreign countries. We don't do much of this here. But in other places like India and Africa and Asia, you go to the market and you never pay the price that's there. As a matter of fact, most places won't let you just pay the price that's there because part of their enjoyment of shopping and selling is the haggling. And you go in and you say, Well, I'll pay you this for that. And they say, Oh, no, I've got to take this other amount. You say, Okay, how about this? How about I give you two of these and one of those? (coughs) We don't barter with God. I cannot make God my debtor by what I do. He must graciously give to me the promise. It's got to be one or the other, Paul says. That's the only way it is. Either it's law or it's promise. Can't have it both ways. You want it by law? Again, he'll say in Romans 5, then you can have it by law with Adam. Guess what? 100% failure rate. You want it by grace, by the promise? Guess what? You're in Jesus Christ. 100% success rate. It's one or the other. You can't have the inheritance by both. The trust must either be in God or in me. I can't try and find a balancing act. I've either got to trust the promiser or I've got to trust myself. And finally, we see that this gracious promise that comes from God is our inheritance. Now, think about this. This is hope. Paul says that the blessing comes, the inheritance comes by the promise, not by law. It's as if he's saying to the Galatians, You know, if you want the promise by law, you're in a lot of trouble. I've already told you no one can keep the law. And you know there's something else too. The law didn't come to you. It came to the Jews. You are on the outside looking in. Peter puts it very starkly in his letter. He says, you who were once not a people are now the people of God. He says, if you want it by law, there's no hope. But look, it's by the promise. What hope? There is then. And not just the Galatians. That's hope for you and for me. Not just because I think practically all of us or nearly all of us grew up in non Jewish households. That means there's hope that it comes by promise, and when I mess up, I have hope in the promise. It's not game over right? I experienced that this Saturday. John got to see it yesterday. You've all done it too. You're watching your favorite team and there comes a point where you say, you know what? This game is over. I said it. Daniel actually thought the game was over because I was so final about it. We do that at times. We give up on our marriages. We say, you know what? Game over. We give up on our children. But you see, the promise says the game is not over. Jesus Christ brings hope because of the promise. This inheritance reminds us that the game is not over. Because we said it before do you remember where else we see an inheritance? It's with the prodigal son. If ever there was anyone who thought the game was over and there was no hope, it was the prodigal son. He's hoping to go home and to be treated worse than the servants of his father, and he would rejoice in it. And his father picks up his robes and runs a picture that is inconceivable in the ancient world. Inconceivable. It would be something like if you were walking up toward the White House, And the president took off his suit coat and ran to meet you and hugged you. You would be shocked by it. That's the hope of the gospel. When all hope seems lost, that is the hope of the gospel. It's so sure that Paul plays this theme again and again of inheritance, of our eternal reward as an inheritance we have that is secure. He uses it in Ephesians. He uses it in Galatians. Here, he uses it in Colossians. It's used in Hebrews. Peter uses it at the beginning of his letter to describe something that is incorruptible, undefiled, unchangeable, unlosable. That is our inheritance. That is your inheritance in Christ by faith. This is the promise. It is permanent. It cannot change. It cannot be lost because it is secure. It cannot be earned because it is gracious. And it is the primary thing that we must look to in our lives. The promise of God. We must look to the or. For there is where our inheritance is found. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this promise. that, Even though it was given thousands of years before our day to Abraham, we can draw comfort from it. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would bless us this day and help us to see your goodness to us in this promise. In Jesus' name, amen.